The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, good afternoon. Good to see you here. I do sometimes um, comment on signs as I'm driving down the road with my wife. and I like a bold claim. So I remember going to a fish shop once uh, in Des Moines because it had a sign saying, the best fish and chips in Sydney. So I like a big claim. It's bold. And the claim today is, no Jesus, no science. If you remove Jesus of Nazareth from history, I want to suggest to you there's a very strong case that Science, as we know, would never have existed anywhere. Uh, you may think that's almost as silly as suggesting something like, no Jesus, no basketball. What possibly could the connection be? In fact, there isn't the sort of sense of hostility between basketball and Christianity that some people feel there is between religion and science. But, of course, if you do know the history of basketball, you'll know it's exactly true. That uh, the history, if you look up the history of basketball, was invented by a bunch of Christians for a particular reason. Now, the problem, I think, for us in this is that we all have a... If you're brought up in the same world as I was, as sort of a Western, semi-educated thing, we just know at a deep level that there's this ongoing, enduring conflict between science and religion, or science and the church, and we may make excuses for it, but that's just a sense that we know. And this is felt by our understanding of the Darwin issue, not Darwin the city, but Darwin um, the scientist, and Galileo. And so up on the, on the picture there, you can see one of the many, many, many pictures. It's one of the milder pictures of Galileo um, here. Uh, very often the picture is not quite as flattering. You've got Dar um, Galileo, the young truth seeker. There he's got the bit of technology, the telescope that he had and talking often to churchmen who are often dressed in dark colours, looking old and grumpy, and often in the dark as Galileo is in the light. And the picture is portraying this fight between the young truth seeker and the old truth crushers. Uh, and so this is, this is the uh, sort of issue that we're dealing with here. I want to suggest to you things are entirely in, in reverse when you understand what actually happened and you go back to the sources. Joshua Billings is a sort of a 19th century American humorist and wit. Amongst a number of funny things he said is this one. Well, it's not funny, it's insightful. It ain't ignorance that causes so much trouble. It's folks knowing so much that ain't so. Right? And I think there's an enormous amount of truth in that. We know so much that is simply false. Every culture has its myths. The dominant culture always has a myth about how it got in charge righteously and thank godly. Um, and uh, this has happened to us in the area of uh, modern science, I think. Let me give you one quick example that will show you the sort of nonsense that we almost all believe and that gets said regularly on ABC programs, SBS programs, BBC programs, um, regularly on blogs, repeatedly in books. Uh, you may have heard it said to you by others. You may have said it yourself. I've said it myself. Here's how it goes. The problem for the church when they were confronted by Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo saying that the earth was not the centre of all things with the stars going round it, but actually the, the 
sun was the centre and we were going around it, was that it took man out of the centre and suddenly man's position as being important was, was questioned and there was this sort of existential angst about us being displaced and that's why the church was so harsh on Galileo, although frankly it wasn't harsh on Galileo at all. Um, but we can come to that in question time perhaps. It treated Galileo very, very nicely um, in real life. The problem with that idea that by moving man out of the earth out of the centre, it trivialised man, is no 14th, 15th, 16th century European would ever think like that. We know how the medievals thought. They wrote thousands of pages of stuff and we've got a whole breadth of understanding of what they think. Here's what they think. Do you know what's at the very centre of everything? Hell. Hell is at the core of everything. Being moved out of the centre is not a bad thing. So hell is at the centre of everything. The earth is outside of that. Above that are the stars. And you know what's furthest away from the centre? Heaven, where God is. So I just want you to see the utter nonsense of that regularly repeated mantra that we didn't like to be moved out of the centre because it made us feel insecure. There was no great virtue in being in the centre as far as the medieval people were concerned. So it's only people who know absolutely nothing about the area that they're pontificating upon can ever make that sort of statement. I'm not frankly annoyed with your ordinary punter who says that, but anybody who writes a book, anybody who dares to make a documentary and, and mouths that sort of trivia... What's well, worse than trivia? It's just not true. And you can only make that sort of statement if you've not bothered to try and understand the very area you're pontificating about. I'm going to calm down now. Um, powerful peeping telling nonsense is, is very disappointing. Well, let's have a look at this question about science, the science of modern science. The word science uh, comes from a Latin word just means knowledge. And you can speak about all sorts of sciences. But we have a particular use. If someone says, I'm a scientist, they're not saying they've got knowledge about something. Um, it's a particular sort of knowledge. The word was only coined in its modern sense in 1833 to discuss the disciplines that we now know as science. I want to give you the definition I learned at Sydney Boys High School and a definition that is still true. And it goes like this. Science is sort of two things, but at its heart... Science, what we would call modern science or sometimes empirical science, it is a method. First and foremost, empirical science, modern science, is a method. It's a, an approach. It's a way to gather information about a certain part of the universe. The Oxford Dictionary says it's, it's systematic observation and experiment with testing. So the idea is you observe something carefully, you see what's happening, you then sit back and you make a hypothesis. Maybe I think this is what's causing it. And then the crucial thing in empirical science, what we would call modern science, is you then work out an experiment to test it. Now, since Karl Popper in the 20th century, science normally speaks about, uh, about the, the attempt always to falsify something. So technically, if you've got a, someone who understands how science works, science proves nothing. It just holds positions that are yet to be disproven. It's falsifiability, and you do it by experiment. So there are some things you simply cannot work out by empirical science, but you'll try to do it rationally and logically, probably. So it's a systematic enterprise that builds knowledge drawn from testable explanations. And this is the crucial thing. It, it, it's a spiral trying to approach reality that goes, observe, hypothesis, that is, I think this is what's happening. You work out an experiment, 
you do the experiment, you then have a look at the results and you think, hmm, my hypothesis is rubbish. Because if, if this is what I thought would happen and it hasn't happened, um, I need to rethink my hypothesis. And then you come up with a new hypothesis or you tweak your hypothesis and then you work out another experiment to test it and it goes on like that, being testable. That's the heart of empirical science. Now, here's some distinctions. You can have brilliant technology and never engage in empirical science. So you can know how to make magnificent ocean-going ships and know nothing about empirical science. You can know how to smelt iron and make all sorts of weapons but know nothing about empirical science. You can make beautiful porcelain, beautiful art, but know nothing about science. We often make the mistake of confusing technology, brilliant technology, with science. That is, the empirical modern science that we're talking about today that has driven uh, society on in the last few hundred years. Trial and error is not the same thing as science. It's a related process. Uh, Henry Ford used to say that when I employ 100 men, I employ 99 hard workers and one lazy man. Why the one lazy man? He says, because they will work out the shortcut you know, that we'll then build into the next you know, part of the factory. I always like to think I'm that man, really, the lazy man. And I cover that by saying I'm going to be the innovator. But the lazy man is not doing empirical science, but he is thinking, hang on, if I do this and this, it makes it easier. So it's thoughtfulness. So you can have utterly brilliant societies with brilliant technology, but it's not science. Is that reasonably clear? Because there's an enormous amount of nonsense that gets said about this culture had science and this culture. No, they didn't. And I know that sounds like a terribly arrogant, brash, rude thing to say, but I think that's just what the facts of the matter are. Now, I'm going to explore that briefly uh, to try and not be completely offensive. Secondly, the uniqueness of modern science. I want to suggest to you, a number of scholars will suggest this, that you have... Um, Modern science, empirical science, has only appeared once in human history. Only once. And that was in Europe, ultimately focused in North Europe, though it started in Southern Europe. Now, if I uh, just show you here, um, these, these sort of books here that you can read, although none of us, I, I imagine many of us have never heard of these two books, but they have utterly shaped the modern Western mind. Uh, written at the end of the 19th century. They are uh, about the, the enduring warfare, that sort of picture of constant conflict. Now, then, in 1923, this man, Alfred North Whitehead, who was not a Christian, he was a great colleague of Bertrand Russell, who you'll know was, it was the great sort of leading atheist in the middle of the 20th century. They wrote this magnificent book on mathematics, which was three volumes, now, Whitehead gave this set of lectures, both in England and America, that were published, and it caused an absolute shattering shock through the Western world, because already it's quite a long ongoing, this idea of the enduring warfare between science and religion, and that if science is kind of the, like, like Jesus, the saviour of mankind, that the church has acted like King Herod trying to slaughter the innocent. And he says, actually, the church gave birth to science. And I want to stress again, this guy's not some Anglican minister, right, just building his prejudices into history. And he wrote this. I'll quote more from him later on. He said, if I can find it, this is the sort of thing he said that shocked people. Faith in the possibility of science was generated in an, un it was an unconscious derivative from medieval theology. So he said, medieval theology is a thing that gave birth to science. 
and he argued that in great detail and with a great deal of conviction to those who bother to read it. Science only appeared once in Europe. It started in medieval Europe long before the Renaissance came upon us. Therefore, if that's true, and I'm going to suggest it comes out of Christian theology, therefore no Jesus, no science. But people will say, but Ian, I've read about stuff, I've heard about stuff. What about Chinese science? Was there not magnificent science in China? Now, Bertrand Russell had said on this that the more we get to understand the history of China and the more we understand present-day China, we will see that China had, has, and will have in the future brilliant science. He said this, Bertrand Russell, because it never contained anything in the culture that was hostile to science, such as the church. See, he's brought in entirely to the myth. Now, Joseph Needham was a colleague uh, around the same sort of time as Bertrand Russell, himself a Marxist and a Marxist historian. He ended up becoming one of the West's great experts on China, deeply respected by the Chinese people themselves. In the end, he started off with exactly the same view, and he writes this in the end. China did not develop science because it never occurred to the Chinese that science was even a possibility. What he's saying is this, this whole business of observe, hypothesize, experiment, rethink and reobserve, that whole method, it, it, it assumes a certain relationship between you and creation and the gods or whatever. But if you have a view that history is entirely cyclical, which the Chinese culture has historically had, um, it, it, perhaps not so much now, I don't know, but certainly historically it has, and that the world is full of spirits or gods or is almost an organism, there's no point putting your mind to look at it because the whole thing is... The, the question for the Chinese was, was one of more seeking enlightenment to understand the season. Where are we in the next cycle? So rather than asking, uh, why does the river flood, you ask, what is the significance of the river flooding and drowning people? It's much more a mystical thing. Uh, and... Um, Yulan Fang, a Chinese scholar also from the middle of the 20th century, says this. They worked on exactly the same area of concern. China has no science because according to her own standard of value, she does not need any. Science has not discovered the scientific method. Our ancients sought phenomena and, and ignored theoretical explanations. Since the arrival of the Europeans, the question has always been concerning explanations. I don't know if you were brought up watching the TV show. Many of you are obviously far too young. Um, by, with Professor Julia Sumner Miller. He'd, 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 he'd paint out a little bit of a scenario, then he'd say, why is it so? That question, uh, why does this happen? Trying to work out the background laws and rules. That sort of question is the question that science says. Why is it so when we do experiments? There's a, a, a Jesuit who arrived in China and lived there for many decades, Father Matteo Ricci, in 1580. He said when he arrived, we've got his journals, he said that he was amazed at the technology that the Chinese had. Brilliant, beautiful. And he amazed at their accuracy when it came to things in astronomy. You can, you can become an astronomical genius without having any knowledge of science. It's a question of a careful observation of what happened next and the time gaps between things. So many cultures that had no science all around the world are brilliant at astronomy and often brilliant at maths, which is a different discipline altogether. Related, but different. When he got to China, he was amazed at the pinpoint accuracy that the Chinese had, mind-blowing accuracy about various things that would happen in the skies and eclipses and things. But after he'd been there for a decade, he realised that they had not the faintest clue why an eclipse happened and no interest in working out why. 
the moon or the sun was blocked out for a time. It just wasn't their concern. But they knew where it happened. And this is the thing that they're saying, that we often mistake knowledge, careful, detailed knowledge of what happens in the creation with science. It's just not the same thing. So we can come back to that. Also with, with India, which, as you know, was brilliant in maths and developed the nought, which came to the West through um, Arab traders, but it was a, it's an Indian invention as far as you know, the nought. India also, if, if in the general Eastern view, that reality is an illusion and the thing is to escape the illusion of change and, and, and of the physical world, you don't waste time studying that which is an illusion. You do if you think it comes from the hand of God. Likewise, the Greeks... The usual nonsense that's said by the learned in our culture now about this thing is that the Greeks had brilliant science. Brilliant. Um, and it was going magnificently until the Christians turned up. Oh, dear. And then we fell into the Dark Ages, as they called it for many years. No, no scholar calls it the Dark Ages anymore. Anyone who uses the phrase Dark Ages shows that they're, they're still regurgitating stuff they learned in high school. Collapsed about 500 AD when Christians became you know, a bit dominant and it was dark, 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 dark until suddenly out of nowhere Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo all of them throwing off God, etc. persecuted by the church. This is the myth. But actually Greek science is a nonsense in terms of empirical science. In fact what took the West so long to come up with empirical science was the unbelievable dominance of Aristotle. Aristotle had this, he, he had no interest in empirical science. Uh, there's a whole series of reasons. You may like to ask a question about that if you wish. But he had, his view of the universe was it was, a, it was made probably by the gods from pre-existent stuff. The universe was eternal. God was eternal. It was just all caught up there. And the universe itself was an organism. It had life in it. Everything had sort of life and it, it was an organism. It wasn't an artifact made by someone else. It was a living thing. And, um, and you just observe, then you use the beauty of human logic and you come up with an explanation. And it, it, Aristotle's brilliant. If you want to understand how human society works, some of his books are magnificent. You want to understand human communication, what I'm attempting to do now, I could well do with reading Aristotle again. He's a genius on things. He's, but everything he writes about physics is wrong. Everything he says in the area of what we would call science is nonsense. And it's not his fault that he was taken so seriously for so long, but it was Aristotle that locked human minds into a, into a false prison. You'll know it even from your high school science, probably. Do you remember the story that Galileo went up on a high tower and dropped two weights, one heavy, one not so heavy? Why does he do that? To test what Aristotle had always said was true, which was that the heavier thing, which is always seeking its permanent resting place, it's seeking it, it's not just being acted on by other things, it's seeking it. Because there's more of it, it will seek it more urgently. It will fall faster than the lighter thing. This, to our knowledge, had never been tested. Not by Aristotle, not by any scientist since. Galileo hears it and he works out an experiment. And he does it and they say, blow me down. Aristotle was wrong. Of course, people don't do that. They simply say, no, Galileo was wrong. Aristotle can't be wrong. Right? He's, he's almost divine. Islam itself got locked up. You'll hear regularly. So nobody wants to be a bigot. Well, that's not true. Some people might like wanting to be a bigot. But none of us want to seem as if we're saying, my team's the best. No, 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 no. You know? Eth ethnocentricity, religious, you know, my religion's the best. So the, the, again and again, you'll hear programs on telly, and therefore people will say it. 
about the brilliance of Islamic science. That's baloney. There was nothing. In, in Islam, there was no empirical science. One or two of their scholars suggested it, but it was passed over as a possibility of the, the increasing use of experimentation. They were absolutely locked into Aristotelianism. Um, and it, it was kind of worse because in about the 8th and 9th century, you can read about this in a very fine book written by a friend of uh, Islam. I don't think he's a Muslim, called The, the um, Closing of the Islamic Mind. And uh, there was a great debate in about the 8th and 9th century in, in amongst Islamic scholars about the question of studying the world. And in the end, it was decided that there was no cause behind any event or any effect other than Allah himself. So when it comes to when they began to interact with Western science, it said cause and effect. If there's an effect, what's the cause? Let's have a look. In the end, Islam came up with what is called occasionalism. On every single occasion, the cause of any effect you see is Allah himself. Therefore, there's no need and no point, no really respectful need to do science. But from Chinese science, Islamic science, Greek science, you can show that there was no science because there is nothing that modern science uses. That There's no law. They didn't come up with a law of thermodynamics, even one of the three, none. They came up with no law of gravity. They came up with no laws of motion. They worked out none of the things that are the mark of science, which is standing back, observing, experimenting, working out a principle on which the world works. Well, how was science born? Point three here, very briefly. Two great steps. We are enormously in debt. If you, if you like the benefits of science, and most of us might have a grudging relationship with it, but we have all been enormously blessed through what comes out of science and the technologies born from it, to the, 13th, the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. Because there the medievals from the Middle Ages finally began to break free from Aristotle. And we owe a huge debt to the Roman Catholic Bishop of Paris, who held a conference and then wrote a paper which was agreed on by the Vatican condemning Aristotle as a heretic in about 10 or 12 areas about God, where, where Aristotle was simply wrong about God, particularly uh, in that verse that was read where the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Aristotle didn't believe that. He believed that there was no beginning. The universe was eternal. All change was just apparent. It wasn't real. Um, and that God kind of made stuff but from pre-existing stuff, that the Bible says, no, there was nothing in the creation and God made it and then shaped it as he willed, uh, what was called voluntarism. That the, in Aristotle, God couldn't do whatever he wanted with the creation. He himself was bound by certain eternal forms that were behind him. These guys kind of rubbish. That's wrong. He's wrong on that. And it was about his view of God, drawn particularly from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what that did for the medieval people from 1277 on, it said this, hang on. Aristotle was wrong? Really? Well, if he's wrong on God, maybe he's wrong on other stuff. And it just puts some cracks in the prison. It's very hard for us to appreciate what a moment that was. It was a disturbing moment. You could go to prison for, for writing books that disagreed with Aristotle. Not disagree with the Bible, but disagree with Aristotle. He was, he was such an authority. And so various monks and people like Copernicus and people like that began to play with other possibilities because we were out of the prison. The other thing that then pushed it along was an increasing taking of the Bible literally instead of spiritualising it all the time, actually looking at what Genesis 1 said, really. There once was a, there was a beginning. Who'd have thought it? And God made everything. And God shaped it. 
Therefore, if there's one God who made everything and he's a rational God and he's a law-giving God and man has been made in his image and is invited to have dominion within the world, then it's right and fair and sensible that we should use our rationality and it may reflect God's rationality and the world is consistent and reliable and discover laws. And they went out looking for laws because of what they believed about God and realising that rationality could sort things out if they studied hard enough. So A and Whitehead again, let me read, he's not, not a Christian man, he says this, Western science had sprung from the Bible's teaching that the cosmos was the product of the intelligible rationality of a personal being, God. The greatest contributor to the scientific movement was the inexpungible belief that every detailed occurrence can be correlated with its antecedent in a perfectly definite manner, exemplifying general principles. Without this belief, the incredible labors of scientists would be without hope. It is the instinctive conviction vividly poised before the imagination, which is the motive and energising power for the research, that there is a secret which can be unveiled. How has this conviction been so vividly implanted in the European mind? There seems to be but one source of its origin. It must come from the medieval insistence on the rationality of God, conceived as with the, as the personal energetic God, Jehovah. I do need to move on to leave you some time. Many of the guys, Galileo, Copernicus, Newton, all these guys, very devout men, speak about the two books of God, the scriptures and the book of nature. And as you study one, if you want to hear what God is like, you study the other to see what God does. And as you take this book literally and straightforwardly, you take this book, the book of nature, straightforwardly. In fact, some said you should study this book first because he wrote it first. And through looking at God and creation, then move to the question of God. Now, I do need to try and uh, bring this to a conclusion. Science grew. Thank you for that, Ian. Um, many of the great founding fathers were overtly, passionately Christian. Uh, the tendency of people like Richard Dawkins now to say, oh, they were just formally Christian. That's nonsense. Uh, Isaac Newton, when he wrote his great book, wrote in the preface to it, I've read it, he said, this will finally silence the French atheists. Right? There are no atheists back in the 1500s, 1600s. And Newton thought that so clear and obvious was the divine lawmaker in this that it would, it would shut them up. Well, it didn't. But he was a, quite a devout man. Boyle, Robert Boyle, you might know nothing about Boyle except something of a vague recollection that when you did chemistry, there's a thing called Boyle's Law. Boyle is universally agreed to be the founding father of modern chemistry. Uh, he spent his money on two great things, and he didn't have a great deal, getting Bibles translated into various languages, and he set up a set of lectures, apologetic lectures, to defend Christianity from its uh, many attacks even back then. The last thing is this, in terms of the, now and the future, the great model is um, the, human, the Human Genome Project. It was begun by a man using Western Christianity, uh, Western science, empirical science, without Jesus, would never have come into existence, but he himself was an atheist by choice, a man called Francis Crick. It was, it was completed under the guidance of a man called Francis Collins, who himself was an atheist till he turned 27. And then, when he was already a professional scientist, became convinced there was a God. My suggestion to your friends is that if you remove Jesus and you remove the great spread of the influence of the Bible's way of thinking uh, from Genesis 1 on, we lose empirical science. No Jesus, no science. That's my conviction. You may like to have a friendly argument. Any questions? All these interesting slides and points you're never going to get to see. Okay.
as I said before, you can ask questions three ways. Stick up your hand, I'll bring the mic over. Or, or you could write a question on a slip of paper and I uh, might, might get uh, Caro to walk around and collect those. Or you can text a question to me. But probably, probably the quickest way is if you just stick up your hand and I'll bring the mic over. I was just thinking with the falsifiability aspect in science, doesn't the, test, the testing of things increase your faith in the way things are? Like gravity actually works and you would trust that rather than um, jump off a cliff uh, imagining that you would fly? Is there the other side of that? Um, I mean, I think there, there is a sense of when, when they went out thinking, okay, how does this work? How has God made it? Or as they used to often say, we are thinking God's thoughts after him was a great phrase that many of them used. We're trying to work out how, we know God did it. We're trying to work out how God holds it together. And I think when you study gravity, yes, you, you learn certain things not to mess with it because it's a law that operates whether you like it or not. Planes completely obey the law of gravity. Uh, you think, I love going in planes, I'm a kid in the body. wow, this is amazing but um, they're completely obeying the laws of gravity but there are other laws are coming into play that uh, overpower it, the laws of weird looking wings and going forward motion, what are they called? Aeronautics or whatever, but yes I, I, I don't know if that's an answer to your question yes, no one had worked out why things fall because Aristotle was completely wrong on that he knew things fell Anyone else like to ask a question or make a comment about what Ian has, has said today? Most of um, your argument for saying that uh, Jesus yeah. uh, was the foundation for science, I think, came from Genesis. But I suppose Muslims had a similar creation. God created the world. <clears throat> so why is it Jesus as opposed to... Yeah, good, very good. Yeah, good point. Um, the interesting thing at one level, if I can just throw another question, is why did it take till the 1500s? If Christianity... I mean, it started very, very small and it grew completely peacefully for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, being crushed often. Um, Islam does acknowledge the books of Moses, but practically speaking, they're ignored. Um, certainly when I talk to modern Muslims, they never read. They say it's scripture, but they never read it. They do not believe that, they believe it's a, a latter Jewish sticking into it that when it says that man was made in God's image. They don't, they, most Muslims that I've met will deny that. Um, that. What happened with Islam was it, got, it, it, it became captive to Aristotle. Um, and they, they read Genesis in the way that much of Europe did, which is as a symbolic description and a part of it was what the Protestant Reformation did. That really pushed science terrifically forward because it said, um, no, just read it literally. If, if it's obviously symbolic, the Bible lets you know, but just read that there once was nothing and then God made stuff. Um, but Islam became entirely captive to Aristotle and it, and, and it intensified it with its own occasionalism. Uh, so it just it never embraced that, that method. The, the shame is that Christianity took so long to get there um, and the reason was in the same way as if you're a Christian now living in Australia 
your life is partly explainable in terms of Jesus and partly explainable in the fact that you're a captive to your culture. We all are in some way, in ways that we don't know. Those Christians, because um, so many of them were monks and priests, very devout men and women, but they did not know that Aristotle was actually shaping their world more than the scriptures was. Um, so that's why it, it just took a long time to escape that. So that little guy, the bishop of Huda, thought the bishop of Paris was a, was a hero. But by saying Aristotle's wrong, it set them free. Yes? Um, just wondering if you can suggest something to read to kind of think about these things further, especially if you're not like me and not completely science-oriented. Um, and also, how can you trust them and what they've written? Yes. And maybe they're pushing an agenda. Yes. So how do, you, how do you work out what to trust? I'm trying to get back to the slide that had three books that are worth looking at. I would suggest to start with the, the middle book, The Victory of Reason um, by Rodney Stark. He's a, not a bad chap, uh, quite thorough. You, you may then want to go back and look at the docu- uh, the, the, um, the uh, records themselves that go behind it. The, this, the book um, on the left here is written by a professor from Bond University and, and he is, uh, I mean, these are highly regarded books. They're the three that I'd recommend. But if you go back, say, to the Galileo trial, uh, one of the guys on the panel, I think, here next week is Peter Slezak, who's an atheist who we've had used in a number of debates. Uh, in, in various, he's a professor, of, or was to be the senior lecturer in the history and philosophy of science at UNSW. And he's quite clear, he said, that, the, that, the, that Galileo had no right to be found correct in his time, because actually he wasn't right. The arguments he used for the position that we sort of agree with now were wrong, and he did not have the evidence and modern science doesn't sort of roll over the first time someone comes up with an idea. And he was asking, um, it finished up in a church court, but the, the, the cause was actually pressed by some, of, uh, some other sort of what we would call science professors that Galileo had annoyed. And the picture of Galileo as having all the evidence, he didn't. He found more evidence to back up his theory later. But if you go back and look at some of these trials and, and you compare them to what the popularizers of this atheist, sort of this atheistic myth, uh, they're appallingly mistaken. But these, most of these, um, these three books are really quite accurate. Or you can go back to A.N. Whitehead himself. Again, let me stress, no Christian, who was the first guy to propound very powerfully in the 20th century that science was born out of, out of the church. Uh, that was its mother. Um, yeah, I hope that's some sort of an answer. All right. All right, I think we might leave it there. Why not? Uh, How about we thank Ian Power for all the work he's put in on this topic. (laughs) Well, Science Month at City Bible Forum continues over the next few weeks. Let me remind you about some of the good stuff that's coming up, if I can find it. So next week, as Ian mentioned, there's a panel discussion. Dr Lewis Jones, who was here last week, has organised some very smart people to sit on a panel. They're not all Christian, and they're talking on the topic, what does science say about the purpose of humanity? What, what can we learn about our purpose through science? That will be a great panel discussion. 
Lewis Jones will be the chair of that discussion. You'll see inside your program there's an A5 invite. They're really easy things to invite friends to from work, interesting Christians and non-Christians discussing this issue. So please make a big effort to come yourself next week and to try to invite people. And then on Monday the 25th, over in the town hall, we have Dr John Lennox from Oxford speaking on cosmic chemistry, do God and science mix? Here are some pictures from the cosmic chemistry event that was held down in Melbourne. Dr Lennox will give a lecture on the topic. You can see all the people that were there. It was a sellout in Melbourne last week. It was a sellout in Brisbane. And then there's a moderated question and answer time. And that's the same format that we'll have in Sydney on Monday the 25th. So the last time I heard, I think we sold about half the tickets to the town hall. It's probably a bit more than that. Uh, Brisbane and Melbourne and Adelaide have sold out. Come on, Sydney, you can do it. If you want to go, come along and invite your friends to get a good discussion going. Well, Science Month continues. Back to the books and we'll see you next week. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.